Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Local Japan Podcast. This is Jared, and today I'm going to be diving into probably the landmark text on Komika restoration. It's called Japanese Country Style by Yoshihiro Takishita. Before I dive into that, though, I thought I would tell a really cool story that happened to be since the last podcast. So, in episode 40, I spoke with Steve Bimel, the founder of Japancraft 21, which is a nonprofit that is dedicated to preserving and restoring the artisanal folk crafts of Japan. And a part of the organization is this initiative called the Shin Machia Juku, which trains the next architects and the next carpenters to lead the way in traditional Japanese carpentry. And it's run by this. Traditional carpenter and architect Naito san. And what is awesome is Steve Bimel put me in touch with Mr. Naito. They have this workshop that they're doing, and it's totally free. And they're just volunteering their time because these two men are completely dedicated to reviving and ensuring that、uh, Japanese. Carpentry and the landscape of Kyoto's Machia stay intact for future generations. And so they offered this workshop for free, and there were still spots available. And so I was able to go,、uh, took a train over to Kyoto, and spent the day with Mr. Naito in the Chionin district of the city. Went to his workshop, and his apprentice, who is now, I think, a Becoming a master. He's kind of a full time professional now. So the two of them walked us through、uh, first a little bit of, I guess, a textbook definition of Japanese carpentry. So we had some text that we went through, and, and then we also learned about this thing called the sashigane, which is the Japanese L shaped. L shaped ruler. I mean, I think it's actually universal across carpentry in the world. But、um, the thing that's awesome about the Japanese one that I learned is it was imported from the Silk Road. And what's incredible is that they have these different markers on this ruler, the sashigane, that help the carpenters mark right angles whenever they're. Marking, like whenever they want to carve a joint, for example, the female and the male joint, they have to fit perfectly, right? And so that requires the carpenter to cut perfect right angles into the wood. The points on the small part of the ruler line up with the points on the large part of the ruler, and the points are at a perfect Pythagorean theorem ratio. So If side A is equal to one and side B is equal to two, then the hypotenuse would be、uh, the square root of three. I know basically all you have to know is that they use the Pythagorean theorem and they have markations inside of the, the ruler, the sashigane. And they use that when they mark the wood and they have special techniques to find out where to mark it. and And then, of course, they use the wood to cut it down. And so we learned how to use that. And it was, it was such an incredible experience to take that knowledge from paper and actually apply it to a piece of wood. So we did that. 
And then the third part of the workshop was outside, where we actually took the wood that we marked up, and we actually cut it down with real blades. And we created our little joint uh, out of wood, which is, of course, what the Japanese use. They don't use any nails in their traditional carpentry. And so I got to experience that thanks to the hands of a, a true professional carpenter, Mr. Naito-san. So I want to give a huge uh, thanks to Naito-san and a, express my gratitude to Mr. Steve Bimel for introducing me. What they're doing is incredible. And if you want to learn more, go to japancraft21.com. What they're also doing right now is they're opening spots for their school, for the Shin Machiajuku, and it's, it's free as well. So they're offering an opportunity of a lifetime for a Japanese carpenter to learn the skills of a toryo, which means the main supervisor of a traditional construction site. And the program is an 18-month course, and it's two Sundays a month, and it's all completely free. And the more people that sign up, the hope is is that they have a highly qualified applicant pool to choose from, and there's going to be five spaces only in the course. And they want to choose the five carpenters who are most likely to succeed, the ones that are most driven, and the ones that are willing to take on the responsibility of handing down this incredible craft to the next generation and keep it, keep it alive. So it's such a great thing that they're doing. I'm in full support. And the great thing about the podcast is that it's very easy for you to help out. You don't have to spend any money, although they do take donations. But in this case, just if you have people that you know in your networks, your friends or family, maybe I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast have connections to Japan. So if you know a carpenter who's interested, or if you have a friend of a friend who's a carpenter, let them know and, and send in an application because you never know, you might get a spot. Uh, last housekeeping note before we get into the book is about Patreon. So today's episode is going to be the last episode for Patreon. From this point forward, I'm going to publish all of my upcoming Local Japan episodes exclusively through uh, Substack. So if you subscribe to the Substack by email, then you'll get all the episodes directly to your inbox. And of course, if you follow on Spotify or Apple or any of the podcast listeners, Amazon, Google, etc., you'll be able to follow Local Japan and everything that I'm doing. To people who were on Patreon, the next episodes uh, will be free. So you, of course, you don't you won't pay for them. But if you would like to donate, you may continue to do so at substack.com for $5 a month. Yeah, and then there's also an annual option to subscribe, which is $40 for the year, which comes out to a little bit, let's see, 12 to 5. Uh, so it's like, what? It's a bit above $3 per month. It's much appreciated, and it really does mean the world. Uh, but uh, this, I think, will be the last time that I hop onto a new platform. So from here on out, we'll just stick with Substack and uh, we'll continue on with this journey. And with that, I bring you my reading of Japanese Country Style by Yoshihiro Takeshita. 
Japanese country style with the subtitle Putting New Life into Old Houses is the first book written by Yoshihiro Takeshita. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Mr. Takeshita, you can actually head on to episode 14 of the Local Japan podcast. In that podcast, I reviewed uh, the autobiography of his adopted father, John Roderick, who was an American journalist under the Associated Press, and he lived in Japan. He bought his own minka, and with the help of Yoshihiro Takeshita, his adopted son, they renovated the house together. I loved that book. And you'll get to learn about Yoshihiro, but from the perspective of his adopted father. Also something that really brings me close to Japanese country style is that I met Mr. I met the author. I met Yoshihiro Takeshita at the Mika Summit earlier this year in Aichi Prefecture. And I had learned about Mr. Takeshita through the book. And I really admired him because of the incredible career he had in traveling around the world and restoring all these minka and preserving this incredible craft. He's such a legend and such an important figure in our modern times, in this minka restoration world. To be able to have met him was like sitting down with one of your heroes. And the great thing about it too was that he was a, he was a great person. He was so generous with his time we had sat down for one talk during the summit and listened to the lecture. And upon exiting the, the building, I, I struck up a conversation with him and you know, thanked him for his work. And it was actually just around lunchtime. And uh, so, he was so he was so welcoming and humble. And he took, he took an interest in me, I guess, and we... We took a walk, and I told him about what I'm trying to do with the Akin Company, and uh, we sat down for lunch together, and we talked about some common interests coming from, such as um, Soetsu Yanagi, who I think if you've listened to this podcast now, you'll have learned a little bit about him. Um, we talked about Pasadena as well, my hometown, and um, Mr. Takashita went to visit Pasadena, and he went to some of the famous architectural sites there, done by the Green and Green Company. And like having read this book, Japanese Country Style, you know the book is so timeless that it could have been written today, or it could have been written fifty years ago, or could have been written a hundred years ago. And so the fact that I get to live in history at the same time as Mr. Takeshita is is really special and. And so to have been able to sit down with him was um, was something I'll always remember. After the Mika Summit, I immediately bought the book. And so it's a really large hardcover book with some incredible photography. So today I'm going to to walk through the book roughly in chronological order. And I also have six principles that I took from the book that I will relay as I go through the book. Um, I'm not going to read the entire book because most of the book is cut up into, I guess you could call them case studies of each property that he has restored over the years. And then he has pictures of the details of this is the room that I made or this is the 
this is what I was thinking when I was working with this client. So if you want to get you know, all of the stories of every house that he's done, uh, then definitely buy the book. My first principle that I took away from Japanese country style is that Mr. Takeshita puts practice over theory. He puts experience over formal education. And that's something that I think we do in the modern world. That's a mistake sometimes, is that we rely too much on textbooks and we don't learn through doing anymore, especially in the middle school and high school systems that we have today. And even the university system at a certain extent, where you're in class from nine to five, all throughout middle school and high school. And very rarely do you actually get out into the world and try things out. We do have science projects, which are a good example of experimenting in the real life to, to learn lessons. But so often we are in our textbooks. Uh, something that I really like and admire about trade school is that the students, they have to, they have to learn the first principles, of course, the, the fundamentals, which are oftentimes written in a book or taught in some kind of lecture with an expert. But I think half the time they're on, they're in the field, either working as apprentice or they're in some kind of laboratory where they are actually building stuff from scratch and making mistakes and iterating and learning. And that kind of style is something that Mr. Takashita incorporated into his life. I'm going to read a small section from a foreword by Amakatsu Sachiko. She writes, It takes a special gift to see the true value of what appears as junk to the ordinary eye. Mr. Takashita has an instinctive ability to see through layers of dirt and rubbish, the accumulated grime of years of daily living, down to the essential beauty of the underlying form and the sturdiness of a building structure. Above all, the structure is solid, permitting all manner of free experimentation. The charm of the reconstructed house probably has a lot to do with the fact that Mr. Takashita never studied architecture in university and approaches design strictly from the perspective of a home's future inhabitants and what will make them happy. Above the beams in the Takashita living room, in the space formed by the steep angle of the jointed roofs, is a free arrangement of endless little rooms, each with its ladder and stairway, that conveys the joy of children playing at hide-and-seek. The young man I recall from those early days has now overseen the rebuilding of 30 Gashozukuri farmhouses, thus saving them from demolishment. Now well into his fifties, he exudes confidence and calm. Mr. Takashita wishes to rest a while from the work he has done so well for so long, and consider his next step. I look forward with pleasure to his next bold leap. I have often wished for a bird's-eye view of Takeshita's architecture, a wish that this book will go far to answer. And Mr. Takeshita himself speaks about this importance of experience in his introduction to the book. So he actually talks about John Roderick and the house that they rebuilt together when, he, when uh, Mr. Takashita was very young, he says, Although we had obtained the house itself, it was to be a long time before we could finally live in it. First we had to look for land. 
After a year and a half of searching here and there, we eventually found a suitable location on Kamakura's Genjiyama Mountain, overlooking Mount Fuji and Saigami Bay. And the moment of actually transferring the dwelling came at last. Carpenters from Gujo, heir to the master's tradition of the Hida region in Gifu, began the work, and I also helped with the transfer as much as possible. It was more interesting and fulfilling than I had expected. With the cooperation of a number of people, the house was finally completed, and I once again experienced the thrill I had as a boy upon seeing the Toyama family house for the first time, and on seeing Senrion in Ropongi. But delighted as I was to have realized my long-standing dream, I felt physically and mentally weary. I had graduated from university, and with no clear view of my future career, I set off overseas in search of a new beginning. It was a haphazard, spur-of-the-moment, shoestring journey around Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and the United States. But it brought me into contact with all kinds of different cultures, and taught me the habit of observing and learning from things. In particular, my first-hand contact with the stone-building culture of the West had, almost without my knowing it, strengthened the attractions for me of Japan's wooden buildings. In later life, on many occasions and in many places, I have had the cause to think of this journey as an incomparably rich source of fertilization in my life. Something that I really love about that passage is that he says here, I felt physically and mentally weary. I had graduated from university and with no clear view of my future career, I set off overseas in search of a new beginning. So the thing that's great is he doesn't even say where, where or what he graduated from. It seems like he didn't have, he didn't put a lot of emphasis on where he went to university or what he studied in. He seemed disoriented in life. And so he went out into the world. In chapter two of the book, he gets into a little bit of philosophy and history about old homes. Chapter two is titled, The History of Gashozukuri Dwellings and Village Life. This is where my second principle comes in from the book. And the second principle is that what's important about these homes and the central ethic that makes them so valuable and beautiful is that they're fundamentally humble buildings. And to have taste does not require money. You don't have to be rich to have taste, to have good taste. I'm not saying that money is trivial, but you can certainly have a lot of money, be really wealthy, but have no taste at all. And to be gaudy and kitsch and flashy. And as we'll see in this passage, Soetsu Yanagi comes in and Mr. Takashita would say that humility is a really important part of having good taste. So let's see how that kind of weaves in here. So Mr. Takashita writes, In the writings of Yanagi Soetsu, known for the Minge folk crafts movement, we find the following on the subject of Tariki, the other power that Jodo sect believers value so highly. So Jodo, is a, Jodo Shinshu is a sect of Buddhism, and it's actually a, a Buddhist practice that my family inherited uh, from Japan, since we are Americans of Japanese heritage. This is now Takshita quoting Yanagi Soetsu. Quote, This is the first time I have used this expression, which suggests the other power of Buddha. A work that bears its creator's signature is obviously determined by the powers of the individual in question. However, when the object is anonymous, it is the work of many ordinary unlettered people. If there is beauty here, 
It does not stem from the power of a single individual, but must be seen as the work of a power surpassing the people involved, operating behind the scenes to endow the object with beauty. To put the matter simply, the other power, Tariki, the hand of Buddha, is at work in the beauty of the anonymous object. Furthermore, on the subject of Minge, folkcraft, Yanagi gives the following criteria. Quote, First is that the object be unattributed. Second is that it be the work of a craftsperson. Third is that it be an article of everyday use. Fourth is that it be an article produced in quantity. Fifth is that it is not an article that was made specifically to be beautiful. By this definition, Gasho Zukuri dwellings surely represent the epitome of Minge. Something that I was thinking of when I read this passage was about the meritocracy of Jodo Shinshu Buddhism. It's also called Pure Land Buddhism. And the idea of the Pure Land is that you can enter enlightenment if you recite the name of the Buddha. That is the main requirement. And so Jodo Shinshu Buddhism is a very meritocratic force. It does not require you to memorize and recite old Buddhist texts or Buddhist poems. It doesn't require you to engage in excessive ritual. Instead, it's about this idea that anybody has the potential to gain enlightenment if they put in the right effort. And I I would parallel this with Christianity as well, where the one reason why the Christian myth is also meritocratic is because Jesus was born in a manger from Mary, who was a common person, and um, she gave birth in a in the outhouse of a farm. The Christian story is 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 centered around a common person who was actually a, a carpenter, also, right? Uh, Jesus was a carpenter. And so there's this idea of meritocracy behind both of these religions. And it really comes forth in this retelling by Hyanagi Soetsu, this idea of the beauty of the anonymous object and uh, this idea of humility, not being flashy, not being a king, um, but just being a common person who is humble and works hard. Just as a last uh, fun fact, uh, gasho is the, a word used to describe prayer, where you put your two hands together to pray. And in Japanese architecture, there is a term for these really large folk farmhouses. It's called gashozukuri. The reason why the they're called gashozukuri is because the roofs are very steep and they're in the shape of gasho or in the shape of two hands coming together in prayer. So that's kind of a cool fun fact that also describes the the religious nature of Japanese farmers back in the older periods of Japanese history. Okay, the third principle that I took from the Japanese country style is the importance of using robust natural materials and this idea that the people who built these houses were really in touch and were in harmony with their natural surroundings. One of my favorite passages in the book is also in the introduction. 
After purifying the four corners of the house with ritual salt and sake, I rubbed the central pillar over and over again, marveling at its long years of service and imagining its history. Once the thatch had been taken off, the whole primitive structure of the roof was revealed, lashed together from the gasho frame and brushwood. Next, the roof beams were lowered to the ground, and there emerged from beneath them the form of the wonderful interlocking beams of curved timber, as well as the sturdy pillars. Once the straw mats and bamboo had been lowered from the roof space, and the earthen walls had been removed from, the, from between the pillars, the bare skeleton of the house was revealed. These were the main beams and pillars. Bulky and robust and extremely beautiful, they appeared sculptural, with a lifelike dignity. It was so enchanting that I would happily have left it as it was to be able to gaze at it forever. The peculiar experience I mentioned came a few moments later, when the beams and pillars were finally dismantled and laid on the ground. The vital light they had radiated a moment ago was lost in an instant. What remained were a few worn old pieces of timber. The mortises and joints that had been cut here and there were painful to look at, like great wounds in the wood. It was a truly pathetic sight. Removed from their role of forming the frame of the house, the pillars and beams had simply become some old timber. In this cruel state, the lumber seemed to be speaking to me. It seemed to hear voices imploring me to do something. The one task I could undertake in response to the wordless pleas for attention was, of course, to revive them through relocation and reconstruction. When the pillars and beams were reassembled as a contemporary home, when that space had been restored, that was when the beautiful luster would shine forth once more. And so I became ever more entranced by the work of relocating and reconstructing old Minka. The joy of seeing a house finished is different every time, and there is nothing better. It more than makes up for the two or three years of toil it takes to get the job done. But before I knew it, 30 houses had been transplanted and were thriving in their new locations. I think there's really something to that. I think what makes Japan's wooden buildings so special is that wood comes from trees, which are living things. And we as human, human beings, living creatures, we, we have uh, an indescribable connection with other living things. And so the fact that our homes, or these homes, were built of once living materials, you can feel the life inside of them. And it's interesting for, for him to talk about the life that the wood showcases when it's in the shape of a house, and then also the, the lack of life that it has once it's just laying there on the ground. So there's this kind of sense of harmony where the human being has a relationship with the wood if it's in the shape of a home. Okay. This next part goes into the um, this idea that these homes were built by people in touch with nature. The areas where Gashozukuri buildings are commonly found are among the few regions in Japan where snow lies on the ground for more than four months of the year, regularly achieving a depth of two or three meters. The characteristic steep roof of the Gashozukuri style is designed to shed snow, and the stables for livestock located within the house proper are intended to protect the animals from the heavy snowfall, reflecting the concept of livestock as part of the family. He goes on to say, The side business of raising silkworms in the second story of Gashou houses began around the middle of the Edo period and continued until the early decades of the 20th century. The essence of the seasonal lives of these honest villagers, wafted unnoticed in the smoke 
from the sunken hearth. It colored the great central Daikokubashira pillar, staining the bamboo and the curved beams over the course of centuries, producing an extraordinary living space. We might say that the passing of time itself creates this beauty. This lies in stark contrast to the contemporary houses which appear bright and functional at first glance, but becomes grimy and unattractive within a few years. I can't help but think that Gasho Zukuri dwellings silently rebuke our contemporary way of life and conceptions of beauty. And uh, I think that's that ethic of being in touch with nature is to be try to be in harmony with be in harmony with nature, but also to to respect it because nature is brutal, right? It it can be really overwhelmingly hot and humid. It could be freezing cold. Um, it could be difficult to feed yourself um, in those old times. And so the way that the houses are built, they're built for a reason, for that way of life. And they're built because ancestors had passed down that design knowledge for centuries. So in the modern world, we're a little bit cut off from our natural surroundings. I think probably the best example is that we just don't see the night sky anymore. Uh, we've totally blunted ourselves from being able to look up in the sky and see the Milky Way, which is a shame. Uh, and of and also, I mean, Takeshita-san, when he renovates these old homes, he makes them comfortable. He makes them so that they're insulated and heated, and so you're protected and comfortable, uh, and and live in a good modern life. I'm definitely personally not an advocate for for building homes that uh, introduce you to the extremes of 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 natural temperature, but I think there are ways to incorporate this concept into your life. And uh, one really great example was actually in the book. So this section comes from the chapter, The Musashino House. The top floor, in accordance with the owner's wife's wishes, became a moon viewing room. The moon can be seen through two skylights I built on the ends of the gasho beams. One reason why you have to get the book is so you can see all these beautiful photos. So Gasho Zukuri houses are very tall, and at the very top of the building, it's very pointed, of course. And on the third floor, there's not that much space when you get up there. It's kind of like an attic. Uh, but what he did was he cut these rectangles on the sides of the, the very top of the roof. And so from either side, the light shines down into the attic and it's a beautifully lit space and through the windows of course you can see the moon on a good day and i think that's uh i think that's such a great great incorporation of of nature inside your design designing your home to be able to to look at the moon or to see the stars or and then also to be able to to look up at the moon while also looking at the ceiling which is made of bamboo and rope and wood i think it's uh, there's something so pleasing about it to the eye and to the human body it just really um, fits with the human the fourth principle that I take from Japanese country style is the idea that these homes are built to endure many years they are built with a long view in mind and they don't adhere to short term construction in the same way that we do in the modern world where we can build a house and a month or less using quick materials and quick techniques 
And then he also writes in a section called the Takanishi House, um, a section about building for the long term. The Takanishi House. I received a commission to examine an old home within the grounds of Sakuragi Shrine in Noda City, Chiba Prefecture, from the chief priest, Mr. Itsuki Takanashi, and his family. They wanted me to completely rethink the dwelling and rebuild it more comfortably from the main and sub-buildings through the Kuda Stone House gates, bathhouse, and sheds. It is common for the owners of large old houses in Japan to demolish them and replace them with something modern built from scratch. This deplorable practice is what motivated me to preserve Minka in the first place, and I was very pleased to meet someone who wanted to restore the old buildings rather than destroy them. Since the woods on the northern side were spreading and closing in on the main house and the storehouse, I shifted the buildings, foundations and all, to a new spot on the site. I changed the thatch of the beautiful main house to copper roofing, retaining the shape of the roof, put in subfloor heating and an air conditioning unit hidden behind a wooden grill, and converted the shed to a garage. The sub-building, main house, storehouse, and the new bathhouse that I made were joined by corridors that gave the house a sense of unity. The project took four years to complete. Fortunately, a fine carpenter, Mr. Eishi Sanjo, did the work single-handedly. The Takanashi family's unwavering intention to pass on traditional Japanese culture to the next generation ensures the success of this challenging project. I wanted to read that section because it's important to acknowledge the Japanese leaders who are doing so much to who have, who have already been doing so much to preserve this work, despite the social issues that they face, and uh, to, to applaud them. There's another section of the book from the Weber House that speaks to this, and he quickly says, When Mr. Weber retired from working life ten, ten years later, we added a second living room, bedroom, and bathroom for the couple in the area under the roof. Ten years after that, when they returned to Switzerland, real estate agents planned to demolish the house to make a vacant lot. Fortunately, the house was ultimately saved when someone who appreciates the value of Mika bought it. And I just wanted to read that one because sometimes the the preservation is so simple. Sometimes if you want to save these buildings, you have to vote with your wallet. And uh, luckily, someone who saw the value of, of this old architecture bought the home instead of letting someone else come along and demolish the site. The, um, the fifth principle that I took from Japanese country style was that these homes accept art. Takashita-san is a antique collector, and in the section titled Interior Design and Antiques, he writes the following. Old folk objects go well with traditional style houses. Antique wooden chests, once crafted all over Japan with a rich variety of design, not only are useful for storage, but can be enjoyed as well for the beauty of their grain, metal fittings, and embellishments. They can also be used as a sideboard to display objects or hold an antique lampstand. Like traditional houses themselves, the more such chests are cared for, the more they increase in beauty of utility. Aminka itself may be seen as a giant antique. Indeed, what could be better to display antiques in than an antique house? Now and then, I like to alter the arrangement, whether for a special occasion or on a sudden whim. Either way, I find it is both fun and educational. 
never failing to yield some unexpected insight. If you use your imagination in thinking of ways to use and display antiques, you are bound to find some that are cheaper and of better quality than their modern equivalents. Anyone who lives day to day with Japanese antiques can't help feeling respect and gratitude for the wisdom and achievement of earlier generations, thereby rediscovering the value of traditional Japanese life. Just a quick story about where I currently live in a high-rise apartment in downtown. Not downtown, but uh, pretty much Kobe City, yeah. The apartment does not allow for the hanging of art. The walls, I believe, are made completely out of concrete, and then they have this tiny little film. It's not exactly paint, it's more like a wallpaper. But in any case, first, the apartment managers will not allow for the hammering of nails to be able to hang scrolls or artwork on the walls because the idea is that I leave someday and then new people come as tenants and they don't want the walls to be destroyed or or altered. And so that's the first thing. But the second thing is is you just can't do it uh, because the concrete is so strong that the nails just bend. (laughs) And, And so it's just so inhumane to have a house that does not accept art it becomes so cold and so it feels kind of dead um whereas these houses that i look at in this book are so rich and beautiful and full of art and they they accept the art so well the art um is on display and they have a home and there's just such warmth and in the, that's something not to be taken for granted. Because if you're unfortunate enough to live in an apartment like mine, you you're going to have difficulty hanging up art around your room, and you're going to have a you're going to have difficulty making your room as beautiful as possible. And that's uh, that's a sad thing. So there's different things that I've done to to be able to display some interesting work, but. It's certainly nothing like these incredible Komika homes. So having homes that accept art, I think, is so crucial. The last and sixth principle of Japanese country style that I gleaned is the importance of personalization and crafting the home for the human. One reason why walkable cities are inherently more beautiful than cities like um, Los Angeles, for example, which is mostly a city that you drive in, is because walkable cities are designed for the human, the human being, not a car. And they're also designed at the human scale. They're accepting of the street. They don't reject the street. For example, my apartment is, it's neither personalized, right? It's just a copy-paste. And it's not really human. It's a gigantic skyscraper so it's not accepting of the human being i can live in this room uh the room itself is designed for the human but as a whole the building is not accepting of the human being you have to take stairs or an elevator you don't really get to put your feet on on the ground and uh, the same goes with suburbs actually um even if you do live in a space 
that is proportional for the human, where it is accepting of the street and it is built at a human scale. If it's not personalized and it's it's a house that looks like every other house in the neighborhood, then there's a connection that you're missing with the home. And that's why when, when people in the modern world, they remodel their home, they, of course, they don't maybe they don't demolish it, but they remodel it. They're, you know, they're remodeling it because they're, they're trying to have the house accept them. And I think it's really good to remodel your home um, if, you, if you have that in mind of trying to build a relationship with your house. And that's something that Mr. Takashita has done with his clients over and over again. So in this really excellent section on the dismantling and reconstructing of Minka, chapter 7, he writes this. Once I have received an order, I listen to the client's requests and present a basic plan and a rough estimate. These buildings are technologically simple, but so different from contemporary residences that it is sometimes difficult to describe the reconstruction process, including its beauty to clients. It takes a great deal longer than simply building a new modern house, and circumstances can change during that time, sometimes leading to misunderstandings, great and small. I think that the most important thing is to establish a relationship of trust between the client and myself as director of the project. Only then can our shared image be translated into reality. I usually use the first house I rebuilt, that of my foster father in Kamakura, as a model and a stage upon which to build a concrete image. Then, together, the client and I move the discussion along, offering each other new ideas as we proceed. And he goes on to talk about his worksite, rebuilding the house, and then dismantling it again before final shipment to the final destination. And it's an incredible, it's an incredible uh, process that I would love to be able to see with my own eyes one day. And then in the last section that I would like to read, and he writes this. Shortly after moving into a converted Gasho Zukuri dwelling, my clients often notice mysterious noises at night. Usually, this is the creaking of the wood, and it causes one to feel that the house has really been reborn. And I think that's a good place to stop. Just to quickly recap the six principles of Japanese country style that I got from the book, and the Honorable Mr. Takeshita is number one the importance of valuing experience in addition to education and to include practice in your theory. Number two is the idea that good taste does not require excessive amounts of money, that there is something beautiful when things are designed with the ethic of humility in mind. Number three is the importance of using robust natural materials and to design spaces that are in touch and in harmony with the natural surroundings. Number four is building for the long term so that your building may endure the test of time as opposed to reverting to expedient short-term construction. Number five is find and build spaces that accept art as opposed to reject art. And number six is personalize and build a relationship 
with your home and make sure it adheres to a human scale. And with that, I thank you. I hope you enjoyed this little discussion about Japanese country style, Putting New Life into Old Homes by Yoshihiro Takeshita. I encourage you to buy the book to support him. And I'll see you next time on the Local Japan Podcast. Music